Welcome to episode 16 of OT Conversations That Matter, the podcast, focusing on leadership. My name is Justine Jecker, and I will be hosting today's conversation with occupational therapist Julie Entwistle. Leadership is not a new topic in healthcare and is certainly not new to occupational therapy. However, in recent years, a noticeable spotlight has been shed on encouraging the OT community to engage in leadership. In our newly released Promoting Occupational Participation textbook, we have an entire chapter dedicated to leadership, focusing on specific styles, which include transformational, servant, shared, and authentic leadership. Four examples of OT leadership groups in Canada include the Association of Canadian Occupational Therapy Regulatory Organizations, known as ACATRO, the Association of Canadian Occupational Therapy University Programs, known as ACATAP, the Alliance of Canadian Occupational Therapy Professional Associations, known as ACAPA, and the Canadian Association of Occupational Therapists, known as CAOT. Respectively, their interest lies in informing OT regulation, OT education, and guiding OT practice. Our guest today, Julie Entwistle, is an authentic and enthusiastic leader who is at her best when helping others to work through and resolve complicated problems. She has worn numerous hats in her over two decades long career as a clinician, business owner, regulator, and board director. Having collaborated with persons experiencing a variety of disabilities across the lifespan, Julie is invested in understanding people and what they find to be meaningful and important. Her skill sets have included assessing and managing risk, writing and building policies and programs, and providing actionable solutions for organizations to move strategic, financial, and practical operations forward. In her regulation experience, she worked to bridge the gap between regulator, public, and clinician to create synergies, standards and success criteria to elevate the level of service to those in need. Finally, in her board work, she gained experience in governance by building on dialogue, reflection, and questioning the status quo to move the profession forward. Welcome, Julie. It is wonderful to have you here. Thank you so much, Justine. It's always hard to listen to those (laughs) intros about yourself, but thank you for that. Yes, it was a nice collage I found on LinkedIn, but really a wonderful way to showcase, you know, the past two decades of work that you've been doing. Well, thank you. I think a lot of us that have been working for this long have really, um, really impressive backgrounds in doing a lot of different things that are very impactful for the profession. Absolutely. Um, your, Your bio identifies that you've been engaged in various forms of leadership throughout your career. And also right now you're pursuing uh, doctoral studies focused on leadership. I'm wondering if you can share a little bit about that. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Justine. I uh, started the doctorate program at Queen's back in the spring. I've met some really, really exceptional people. I always thought that I would um, sort of add to my MBA experience with, you know, some more 
training and education and the leadership space. And when I found Queen's program, I was just really impressed with the applied nature, meaning that we're learning, but we're also applying the learning to our day-to-day lives and jobs. Um, but also that, you know, I would get to advance my academic um, thinking, really. For me, everything's about thinking differently. Um, the MBA allowed me to think differently in the business space. Occupational therapy allows me to think differently in the functional space. And my doctorate is allowing me to think differently in the academic space. So it's um, it's been a really, really exciting and um, and great change for me at this point in my career to be doing some additional learning. That's wonderful. And it's it's interesting because you, you think when you think of leadership, that education happening, you know, earlier in our careers, right? Like there's a lot of professional development geared towards new graduates and young clinicians who are trying to develop those leadership skills. But it's really interesting to see with you after two decades now saying, okay, now I want to learn more about leadership, right? It's It's just one of those things that you, I guess you can't truly master. Yeah, and I it's a good point, Justine, because I found in my clinical life, there was lots of courses on clinical things that you could take. And I started to look beyond that and understand what else was out there for, um, you know, leaders and organizations to to really figure out better ways to just lead and grow the next generation or, um, you know, the teams that we're working with or the systems we're working in and so finding this really formal academic way to do that was really exciting for me because I struggled to find other opportunities for that um, when I was still sort of in the regulatory and the business world. And I'm wondering that, are you dedicating all your time right now to being in the program or are you continuing in other leadership activities while also learning about leadership? Uh, thanks, Justine. It's uh, actually exciting for me to be able to talk about my new business venture. Um, I've decided to um, purchase a franchise in business coaching. And as of last week, I'm a certified focal point business coach and am launching um, a practice in the business coaching space. So I'm doing that as my full time employment um, opportunity. In the background, the doctorate is my part-time uh, evenings and weekends. So, yeah, I'm really excited to um, to start adding value to other business owners in the coaching space. And I think, you know, as occupational therapists, we coach people every day. Um, and really, coaching is about helping people to find solutions that work for them. Um, but to apply that to business is going to really help me bring forward the skills that I had as a business owner. And also, you know, my background in regulation um, forward to help other professionals that are, are running practices and want to run really better business. So thank you for asking about that. That's an exciting change in my life of recent. Absolutely. And it's it's exciting to know. I think it's, you know, in our profession, it's not uncommon that OTs are wearing different hats and working in different roles. It's becoming more and more common, I think. Um, I, I mean, I don't know exactly how long that trend's been going, but definitely since COVID, I think a lot of OTs have had to become creative in terms of how they market themselves and how they use their OT backgrounds. And and that's a great example of where, you know, you continue to wear the occupational therapy hat, but you can kind of hone in on the skill set of coaching and, uh, and develop a, a business from it. So, 
Yeah, I don't think, you know, we ever take off our OT hat. I think it just becomes a way of seeing the world. And um, in my new business venture, I'm actually not going to be completing that business as an occupational therapist. It is not an occupational therapy service that I will be providing. Um, and so that's a real mind shift for me and something I had to really think very long and hard about. Uh, but, you know, keeping the occupational therapy connection through my doctorate work is still very important to me because I am still studying healthcare and rehabilitation and leadership under that space. So how I apply that to my business is sort of yet to be determined. But at the outset, you know, business coaching for me is about, um, you know, it's a skill set beyond occupational therapy that I have and that, you know, I'm still learning where the occupational therapy may fit into that. But at the beginning, I'm looking to to launch it outside of the profession at this point. Yeah, that's yeah. Outside of the profession and potentially outside of the province. I'm not sure. Is, is this a virtual business or are you continuing face to face? Uh, yeah, it'll be virtual. Um, I'm not looking to have a really large, uh, you know, client base. But for me, it's about innovation and it's about thinking differently and, you know, not just sort of staying on the path because that's the path. And so my status quo has been occupational therapist for 22 years and I've applied all of my work in that space. But when I really had to think about this opportunity, um, I realized that the occupational therapy didn't have to be connected to that. And so for me, I'm innovating outside of the profession in this new sort of venture while staying connected to the profession through the other things that I'm doing. That's wonderful. And I'm gonna I'm gonna pick your brain a little bit on your your background experience and some of um, kind of the leadership challenges that we are facing as a profession, I think nationally. Um, in my role as director of professional practice at CAOT, the role itself represents the profession nationally. However, day-to-day -day practice inquiries typically are provincial in nature. And, and one exception that I, I find has kind of united the country uh, through COVID is this idea of interjurisdictional practice where um, OTs have to reach out, they have to reinvent themselves, they have to be innovative. Uh, they're working across lines, mostly virtually. And I'm wondering what do you feel in, in your experiences engaging in these different leadership roles um, what do you feel are the different styles of leadership that could help support OTs who are engaging in this type of practice, whether it's virtual or, you know, uh, using their skill set across the country? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's really loaded. And I think it requires a lot of collaboration from all the different organizations that you mentioned, you know, in your introduction, um, because, you know, leadership is about I think for me, what I just said of thinking differently and being innovative. And so how have we evolved and what innovative solutions have we come up with in the last few years that help occupational therapists to feel nationally connected uh, to the roles that they, they have and the jurisdictions they're working in? And so it's amazing that they have CAOT as a resource and they can use that resource to help gain support because as you know, and as I know, uh, regulation happens provincially. So, you know, to try to get an answer from a provincial regulator when you're working across the country is very difficult and something that we experienced as well um, when I was working in regulation. So I think um, innovation and leadership needs to think about 
you know, how do we reduce those barriers? I know we've already started that conversation with the SEAS program and the internationally educated occupational therapists having one landing place for um, them to have their their skill set reviewed and their competency confirmed so they can practice in Canada. And that's a phenomenal program that was built by ACATRO many years ago. And so, you know, using that example, what else can we do to support occupational therapists across Canada, recognizing that this is the future. This isn't going back to, you know, provincial boundaries. And I also know in a lot of the culture equity and justice work I did, and Justine, you're far more, um, you know, experienced in this than I am, but you know, um, my understanding is from Indigenous perspectives, there are no boundaries. And so, you know, when you're looking at things from different cultural lenses, and then we draw a line through the middle of, you know, these provinces to say, here's where this starts and here's where this stops, it can become very challenging for people working in certain communities that, um, you know, that don't subscribe to that type of um, territorial and colonial mentality. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that there are so many opportunities now in 2022 and in going forward where uh, we can reconceptualize what it means to be the Canadian occupational therapist. I, I've commented on that in previous podcasts because um, I personally feel that it's an identity that I don't know how many OTs feel that they are a Canadian OT. I, I feel, you know, in 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 the moment we sign our name, we are putting our provincial registration um, beside our name, which immediately puts us in a box. Um, and it's not, you know, it it is respective of the healthcare systems we work in and the current structures that are creative or created, sorry, but I think we have an opportunity to be creative. And um, a really good example is the Resident Physicians of Canada um, and uh, the Canadian Nursing Association and other groups that have begun those discussions. Um, there's a spectrum of, you know, talking about full national licensure, but there's also um, more simplistic models that look at memorandums of understanding and this idea that clinicians can work across uh, these boundaries to support clients. And I think your example of um, Indigenous communities is very accurate, right? Uh, the lines of uh, when we do our land acknowledgements and we're looking at, um, uh, you know, territorial representation, it does not, uh, it, it is not the same as how we've created the lines of what is a province and what is a territory. Some of those areas are much larger, some of them are much smaller. And so how do we, um, how do we kind of work towards that equity and justice piece uh, while also, you know, respecting, um, you know, the professional regulation piece, you know, in, in which we work. And so I, I do think that, like you said, it, it is an opportunity for um, the high level leadership to come together, but also hearing from day to day clinicians about their experiences. Um, and, and we kind of got onto this talking about virtual practice, right? Because virtual allows you to go anywhere. I'm wondering if you, you know, do you have any experience before this current business venture with virtual practice or working outside of Ontario? Uh, personally, I mean, we would be requested at times to try to assist a client. Um, my previous role clinically was in the auto insurance sector, which is also very provincial. Every province has a different set of um legislation around the insurance act and so we would have clients who were injured in you know on vacation in the US and they're coming back to Ontario and there's a whole nother set of jurisdictional issues trying to assist them in another country 
But then even when returning to Ontario, people would relocate or they would have, um, you know, a summer vacation property in a different province. And we would be asked to go and provide a level of, of expertise to their situation based on their location, because occupational therapy, as we all know, tends to be best in person in terms of assessing and understanding somebody's function. And so trying to apply that assessment mentality to people that were not located in Ontario was very difficult. And I know the lawyers would struggle with that, the insurers would struggle with that, and the occupational therapists, and trying to collaborate with somebody in another province to say, this is our legislation, this is the box in which your opinion needs to apply, was very difficult because we all, you know, do work very differently in those different private sectors um, based on, you know, not only where we were educated, but maybe where we were sort of born and raised from a regulatory uh, perspective as well. And you raised a really good point about the physicians looking to have a, a cross-Canada approach. And I guess I just, I hope our profession doesn't continue to follow others. You know, we tend to arrive when other people are doing something that looks like a good idea. And, you know, you see what's happening in BC in the regulatory space where the regulators are are combining, they're being forced to combine, you know, through a government change. And we're very much at risk of that happening here in Ontario. And yet, what about a national combination? Could we not combine as a profession and reduce some of the um, the red tape and the necessary requirements to be registered to reduce costs and provide a more, I would love to say I'm a Canadian occupational therapist, but to your point, I can't say that because of where I'm registered and how I sign my name. And so, you know, are we waiting for other professions to model this for us, to figure this out? Are we too small to have enough of a voice to make this change? Are we too unimportant to have a voice to make this change? Or can we model something that is innovative? And I was fortunate enough to go to the um, Canadian National uh, Regulators Conference over the last couple of years. And there's other professions that have accomplished this. And, um, I, you know, I know it's complicated. I know it's difficult. But I think we have a choice, you know, like Darwin, you sort of evolve or die. And so are we going to let others continue to determine our fate? Or is leadership saying this is the right choice for our profession? And so let's figure out a way to make this happen and show others, you know, how it can be done if they choose to follow the same example. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's it's incredible how just that self-identification piece can be, um, you know, just saying who you are and where you're from, how that can really it hits you in the face how many boundaries you know we've we've been up against historically. I remember the first time I got an email. It wasn't that not it wasn't that long ago, maybe a year ago, from an OT and in her signature identified as a national occupational therapist. It was a government position, and I remember just being shocked. I'd never seen that before, and I thought, oh, can can we do that? Can can we write that down? <laughs> because I think I'm a national occupational therapist and. What's interesting um, in, in the past year in particular is that COVID has really helped us understand um, how creative we ha we've had to be to work across borders. And, and so interjurisdictional practice is one of those topics that it combines very naturally with the idea of health human resources and where OTs are working and why they're staying in the profession. Why are they leaving the profession? Um, and yeah, and, and that's a piece where I feel, you know, we can't we can't walk away from that, even if we were to honor, 
you know, okay, this is where you're regulated, this is where you're going to work. Um, our HHR needs as a country, it's been identified not just for occupational therapy, but for healthcare in general, that we are in a crisis. And so, you know, it is important to think, okay, how do we service the needs of Canadians as occupational therapists, uh, reaching those rural remote locations, reaching, uh, ensuring that people who speak a certain language have access to OTs who speak a certain language or come from a specific cultural background and, and really reduce um, the barriers. I, I wanted to ask you another question because you had identified that uh, this idea of it shouldn't matter where you're educated in Canada. And and there was at our COT conference in Whistler this year, uh, during the town hall discussion, a student occupational therapist identified that having 14 different curricula to service a low populated country such as Canada did not make any sense. And I'm wondering, considering leadership rules, what do you think our profession could be doing uh, to better support students to become Canadian OTs, or at least feel that their education is not contingent upon where they graduate from? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I didn't mention that my intention through my doctorate studies is going to be looking at preceptorship. I have been a, a long advocate, strong, strong advocate for student uh, clinical education. I've had many, many students over my career. Um, some of them are the, you know, the most, my, my, my biggest, uh, the fan, I'm a strong fan of them in the work they do. And it was amazing to be part of their journey into the profession. And so um, this is a huge passion point for me is um, the education of students into the profession. And, you know, I would agree with that student's assessment. I have had students uh, from every university in Ontario, and it is very different, the type of student that arrives to their clinical placement and the skill sets that they have. And I was fortunate to be able to do that when working at the college because the college does not have a catchment. So we could work with students from different geographies versus in you know, in practice, typically students tend to go on placement in the geography in which they're studying with some exceptions. So, you know, that difference between the students is quite interesting. And, um, you know, you have to be a quite adaptable preceptor to sort of understand how the curriculums vary. Um, but back to your point, you know, we have a perfect opportunity with national competencies for the first time in our profession to then turn around and align the curriculum. And I know it's a ton of work. And I know that part of the politics is that universities are competing with each other, right? They are all really accessing the same pool and students are choosing one, you know, one form of education over another or one location over another. But some of that is very heavily drive by the type of program these universities are selling to these students in their decision point. And so how are we turning the you know, the strong leadership and the strong innovation that happened by creating national competencies uh, into, you know, the ripple effect of national curriculum and national regulation, right? Is that the jumping off point? And are we there? And are these conversations happening? Um, you know, and where do these students go or where do these preceptors go to find the resources they need to be able to support um, you know, the people that they're they're teaching in the clinical education space. 
Yeah, in our newly released uh, podcast just this week for Occupational Therapy Month, we had Mary Egan and Gail Restall talk about, uh, you know, we had posed a question about this, about the curriculum and what are we expecting to happen, right, with the release of the competencies, but in particular with the re release of the new textbook, which has strong parallels to the competencies, and, you know, the summary that I provided was, okay, we need an overhaul in curriculum, right? <laughs> um, and and ACATOP is fantastic because it does connect our 14 universities together, but it is definitely an interesting time where um, your identity is not only connected to your province, it is connected to the school that you graduate from. There is a strong understanding, you know, having been a McMaster grad myself, if you say you're a Mac grad, you know that's problem-based learning, right? Yeah. <laughs> that you, you cannot walk away from that. Um, and, and every university kind of has that unique feel. And I guess that that's going to be the interesting part of the evolution is, you know, um, the the identity of the universities and the programs and how they maintain their identity and their approach to teaching while also preparing students to work anywhere in the country, which I think has been happening for, for quite some time. I know when I graduated in 2009, we definitely had students across the country that came to McMaster University for education. Um, we know that in Saskatchewan currently, but hopefully not for too much longer. All OTs do have to leave the province to be educated, usually in Alberta, but anywhere uh, that they can get into before they can go back and work in Saskatchewan. And so, so yeah, so that's a really important consideration is that alignment between the education system, between this idea of regulation and how we work across the country. And then also from the association perspective, making sure that we are providing the resources that are meeting the needs of clinicians, um, you know, especially when we're providing virtual resources or services and, and prov providing guidance on that. Because I know in 2020, when COVID happened, that was the number one question from OTs. How do I do this? Um, how does it work to, first of all, work virtually and then work virtually across the country, right? <laughs> yeah, oh, for sure. Two totally different problems, really. Um, and I, I think the other piece in what you're saying there, Justine, and, and I appreciate that this conversation has probably been happening, you know, for quite some time. Um, but I heard something on the radio even this morning that 17% of people have moved out of Ontario in the last year or something like that. And I know people are moving into Ontario, but and another 7% are thinking of leaving Ontario. Um, you know, so there is a lot of mobility that's just happening. And, you know, on the radio, too, I hear. Yes, I still listen to the radio. Um but uh, I hear ads for live moving to Edmonton, you know, save the commute. You can buy a house for $500,000. There's tons of like other countries, other jurisdictions or certain other provinces are trying to attract talent away from major urban centers. And so, I mean, match that with the fact that there's OT jobs everywhere. And I know a lot of sectors can't fill occupational therapy positions. And that's partly because we have a ceiling of how many students can be educated. We have a process for bringing internationally educated people into the country, and that can take a significant amount of time for them to be able to get their licensing to be able to start working. Um, you know, and so there's there's lots of opportunity, just as much as there's challenges to overcome. Yeah, and so on that piece, the positions, the the positions that we can't fill, I, I do 
feel that this is, um, you know, on the one hand, we put a lot of energy into our public awareness and public awareness campaigns and informing the public what it is that occupational therapists do. But we know there's all these vacancies. We know that positions are getting converted to other positions because they can't be filled. And I wonder, you know, um, when, when you look at that kind of spectrum of you know, the student being a student, being educated, then becoming an early practitioner, going through the regulatory process, then advancing their skill set. At what point, you know, where does that kind of, I feel it is a global responsibility that it isn't one particular organization that's responsible for, but, you know, how do we tackle that so that OTs are applying for OT positions? Yeah, I, I mean, that's a, a probably a whole separate podcast really around the, the workplace challenges right now. And you combine that with burnout, stress, exhaustion from, you know, two years of chaos in healthcare. Um, you know, women having families or men therapists as well needing time off for their families. Um, you know, there's so many layers to the ins and outs of when people enter and leave. Um, a lot of people that are deciding to retire, you know, 30 years in the same occupation or the same organization um, with all the changes that have happened and all the increased demands and responsibilities over the last couple of years, uh, you know, and so are we tracking that data accurately? Do we really have a sense of it? I know that, you know, Kai High or the Canadian Institute of Health Information has a lot of this, but my experience with that data is it doesn't really speak to occupational therapists. And so it hasn't been really reworked so that we see ourselves in that list. And I know CAOT came out with their own, you know, list and it was phenomenal. And I wish that could be adopted as a way for us to be able to apply, where are we working? What are we doing, you know, uh, to get accurate health information for our profession? I think that's the starting point of any major change has to be understanding the current you know, situation, and that's hard to do in the absence of data. Very wise words, Julie. I would, I would definitely agree. Um, it was such a treat working with Kai Hai over the past year when we were, you know, sharing our areas of practice. Because e even internally, we had to go through that process and understand across the country. You know, we we are not necessarily uh, the gold standard of you know, creating areas of practice, but we try to honor where we feel OTs are working across the country. We're around the 60 or so mark of areas of practice in the profession. There certainly is more than that, I believe, and, and we're working towards a number that is representative. But definitely previously, Kaihai uh, data elements reflected more of the traditional healthcare role. And, and there has been an evolution in that. And it was a really wonderful exercise to work with them to align, you know, when we're talking in, about an OT working in acute care, what does that mean for Kaihai data? Or an OT working in dementia care, what does that mean? But I think you're absolutely right. That's um, that piece. And also there's the Canadian Health Workforce Network. It's another group looking at the data standard across Canada, um, less so than the data set, uh, which is the focus of Kaihai. But these these groups are also additional uh, groups helping to support the picture. So really, if we can paint the picture of where we're currently at, then we can start to address um, maybe some of the gaps or some of the areas that are blank and, and come up with strategies. Because I think a lot of what we're talking about today is that it doesn't rest on one particular 
person or association or organization, but really developing the awareness, um, knowing that we are all 18,000 OTs in the country are part of this process of leadership and changing the profession. And so um, I just want to say it's been an absolute delight talking with you today. I, I know we, we branched out in many different areas <laughs> of conversation, but I wanted to give you a chance, Julie, to share any last words you'd like to say to our listeners and maybe how they can reach out to you. Uh, yeah, no, thank you, Justine. I, I just want to thank CAOT for all of the work that you do at having this national lens. I mean, you really are the organization that's seeing this from all angles. And um, you know, we still strongly need advocacy and we need our associations to continue to be our voice. Um, and so I just want to thank you and the staff at COT for all that you're doing to contribute to that and for the opportunities you provide occupational therapists to speak at conferences or to be involved in any of your initiatives to write and submit for your journals. So, um, so thank you again for that. In terms of reaching out to me, I'm always happy to chat with occupational therapists. I will always respond to those messages. Probably the easiest way to reach me right now is through my LinkedIn profile, which is my name, Julie Entwistle, no H in Entwistle. And um, yeah, you know, if if not, uh, people don't have questions or, or any sort of thing for me directly, then just connect to my profile. I try to uh, post and share things that I think are relevant for the profession. And really, leadership has become one of my main focus areas in the last several months. And so a lot of my uh, my social media activity is going to really be directed in the leadership space. So thanks again for the opportunity to chat today. It was such a pleasure and I just want to do a shout out. I know that we had uh, talked a lot about OTs, the therapists. We mentioned students. We did acknowledge occupational therapist assistants. Um, for that group, for those listening, our OTAs, please reach out to us. Let us know how you feel leadership is um, being an OTA. We we made reference to our 14 universities across the country. Uh, we know there are hundreds of OTA programs in this country. So, um, and, and I don't even know if we have an exact number just yet, but that's something also really important to consider in our leadership discussions. So it was a pleasure and I look forward to uh, future development Developments on leadership. Thanks, Justine.